open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and tonight we consider verses 26 and 27. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. If I read the calendar right, it's been right at a month since we've been able to meet on Wednesday night between uh, my trip to Nigeria and then uh, Thanksgiving and then some other things that have come up in the interim. So I would like to, as we turn here, I would like to at least make sure that we're all on the same page. Because some of us are at a time in life where it's hard for us to remember what we have for breakfast, <laughs> much less. Uh, I'm speaking only for myself. <laughs> much less what we studied a month ago on a Wednesday night. So I want to remind you of where we are in Ephesians. In this portion of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is making a call to wise living. Wise living, applying what we know of God's gracious self-disclosure, in other words, from Scripture, to moment-by-moment existence. Wise living, that's the section that we're in. And I want to make sure that we kind of keep these things in order, because years from now, when somebody asks you, what's the book of Ephesians all about, I'd like for you to be able to tell them. I don't want to get so close to the forest that we can't see the trees. I'd like to see forest and trees both. So this book is about, or this section of the book is about wise living. And... Apostle Paul, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, was wise himself, and he knew that there were three areas in which we all find it difficult from time to time, all jokes aside, from time to time there are interpersonal uh, interpersonal relationships that we have where wise living needs to be exercised to its highest degree, and oftentimes we find difficulty in, in doing that. That's with our spouses, our families, and those with whom we work. There are other categories. These aren't exhaustive categories. But Paul will talk about how we live wisely within the marriage, how we live wisely within a family, and how we live wisely when it comes to working with other people. And to enable us, or perhaps to encourage us, to live wisely, Paul speaks about this incredible ministry of the Holy Spirit called the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he tells us to, he commands us to be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. We've spent quite some time on that. I won't revisit it tonight, but I would like to revisit four results, four results of being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. The first is speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We, we do rightly consider when we sing out in church, or even in the, in the shower, or in the car, or wherever we're singing to God, we, we are singing to God and we're worshiping Him. But something that this passage taught us was that there was more than just singing to God, we're also ministering to one another when we sing. And that just makes sense. When I hear you sing, it ministers me. I listen to the words, and I sing as well. And we, it just does my heart wonderfully well when I, when I hear the volume go up and up. And, and it, it, people play off of one another. And, yes, there is an emotional component to it, but that's not a bad thing, by the way. That's, that's a good thing. And, and we minister to one another in our singing. Actually, that's the first, that's the first of the ministries that's mentioned, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see that speaking to one another and communicating to one another in that way. And then the second thing that's mentioned as a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, singing and making melody with our hearts to God. Third, always giving thanks to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And fourth, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. These are four results of being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, those aren't the only things. But those are four representative things that Paul speaks about here. Now, the remainder of the chapter, and actually all the way from chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 9, is, a, is Paul's exposition on what it means 
to submit to one another in the fear of Jesus Christ. So the areas of submission that aren't mentioned here are representative, not exhaustive. But it is a huge mistake theologically, it's a huge mistake exegetically, to, for people to do what they do sometimes on a popular level. And they'll say, well, yes, it says that wives should be subject to their own husbands as to the Lord. But the verse right before that says that we should submit ourselves to one another. So therefore, that means that the wife should submit to the husband, but the husband should submit to the, to the wife. Now, what they don't go on and say is that parents should submit, or children should submit to their parents and parents should submit to the children. Now, if you're going to be consistent, that's what you'd have to say. And, and employees should submit to their employers and employers should submit to their employees. That would be chaos. That's not what it means. What we have here is in the fourth of the four result clauses, we have this broad category of submitting to one another in the fear of Christ and then specifics underneath that broad category. So this is telling us within these spheres in which we live, marriage, family, and the workplace, within these spheres there are certain times when one should submit to another one. And that's chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 9. In each of these, in each of these cases, there is instruction for those who are to submit, and then there are also there also is instruction for those to whom need submitting as individuals. Wives submit and respect their husbands. Husbands love and sacrifice for their wives. Children obey. Then fathers and mothers refrain from provoking to anger and provide discipline and instruction. Slaves or employees obey. Masters or employers treat them well because they know the God of life. You see, everybody's got a boss. Everybody's got a boss. There's nobody on this planet that doesn't have a boss because the ultimate boss is in heaven watching every single one of us. And since he's the one that, that sets this system up, can you imagine his divine anger if he was to see someone abuse the system, abuse the ship that he set up? For example, if he tells wives to submit to the leadership of their husbands, and we're going to see in a minute, by submitting to Jesus Christ, they are obeying the Lord. But if that's what he tells them, and he does, but then the husband rules in a despotic manner in the home, who do you think the Lord's going to be a little bit unhappy with? The husband, because he would have abused the system that God himself set up. So we start in verse 22 with, with this phrase that is it's challenged by many in our culture today, but is, is thoroughly biblical nonetheless. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The wife submits to their own husbands, not to other men, but to their own husbands as unto the Lord. Or perhaps we could say by submitting to her husband, the Christian wife is submitting to the Lord. If the, if the Lord is the one that told us to do this, then by doing it, you're submitting not just to the husband, but you're submitting to the one who told us to do this. Now, I want, I want to make it clear because that there are gut cases out there that misunderstand this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. It doesn't mean to men in general. There are cultists that have used this verse to, to promote and propagate all manner of evil within the cult itself by saying that the women have to submit to all the men, or at least if not all the men, at least all the men who are leaders in that home. And we've seen even in our own state some of these evil things that can happen with regard to that. That's thoroughly unbiblical, but then so emotionally things in cultists do it 
Both of the things that they do are thoroughly unbiblical. Wives are to submit to one husband, that being their own. Now, if the wife is in a different situation, if the wife is being pulled over by a police officer and then there's a ticket, then she's to submit to the police officer. If the wife happens to be a student in a class at school, then the wife submits to the, to the professor in the school, just like the husband would if he was sitting right next to her. See, so it's Jesus' context specific. But within the sphere of marriage, it's the wife's responsibility to submit to her husband as to the Lord. Then we got down to verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This was the passage that we actually studied back in the first and second week of November before we had this uh, unexpected or partially expected hiatus. Husbands, love your wives. Now, this this phrase, love here, is, is agapao. I've, I've highlighted it in red here, the heritage, the present imperative. Agapate, it, it, it is, this word agapate is a, is a word that most of us are familiar with, and it refers to love that is respected of merit. So what this passage is not saying, my fellow husbands, is to love your wives when they're loving. Love the wives when they've done the things that you want them to do. God doesn't say that. It's going to get worse, so hang in there. <laughs> this, the passage that we studied tonight is going to really lay some groundwork for what our responsibility is in the marriage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a, that's a pretty serious sacrifice. That's what I, when I do a marriage ceremony, I talk about the husband being a sacrificial leader in the home. Because that's what, that's what real biblical leadership is. So the term here refers to love irrespective of merit. It's very familiar, but it means in a little bit of a sterile sense. And I admit this is, this is somewhat sterile, but it does mean to will the very best or to desire the very best for someone else. Frankly, all definitions of love for me seem a little less than authentic. I think because each of us has an inborn idea of what love should be. Now, some of us, because of, not us, me personally, but some, some people, because of the, the early childhood years, have a skewed view of what love should be. But all of us have a general idea, and I think we may not be able to define it. If somebody put a piece of paper, you, you define love. That may be more difficult than we think. See, but I tell you what, I think we know it when we see it. We know it when we're in it. And we can tell it when somebody else loves us by virtue of their actions. It's kind of like trying to define happiness, you know? Happiness is a difficult term to define. We can say that happiness is not. We can say the opposite of it. We can say happiness is not angst. Happiness is not anxiety. Happiness is the absence of pain. Something along those lines, if even that falls short. We can use synonyms for happiness like contentment, contentment of soul, joy. But it's difficult to define words like that because we know it when we're in it. And love is certainly one of them. So agapaho refers to love irrespective of merit. It means to love someone, husbands. It means to love your wife, even when the wife, and I know this is a personal thing, but even when there are times when she doesn't deserve it. And there may be times like that. I don't know. Some people call this unconditional love. And this is very, very important, so listen carefully. This does not mean 
which does not mean that the object of love necessarily has no merit, or that the love that is expressed by this term agapao is emotionless or impersonal in any way. I have to say that because this same term, agapao, is used of the love that is expressed within the Godhead. So, so we don't want to take this idea of love irrespective of merit and then assume that the object necessarily has to have no merit in order for this word to be used. Obviously, if it's used of the Father's relationship to the Son and the Son's relationship to the Father, this is how the Father feels about the Son, this is how the Son feels about the Father, then we don't want to take this too far and assume there's no merit in the object. All we're saying is, though, it does refer to love in spite of the fact that sometimes there is no merit in love. Does that make sense? So sometimes the object can have merit. Oftentimes, almost all the time, wives do have merit. But if it's, it's the one case that when they don't, at least at a particular time, that is no excuse for not loving your wife. I hope you get the point. Now, I, I, I say some things in jest. This is a very, very serious thing. And I have had people over in my office more than a dozen or two times. That, and part of the reason for the breakup is, well, she's not the person she was when I married her. And you're not either. You know, but, but where does it say that in here anywhere? Okay, then now it's time to divorce because she hasn't been nice to you for the last several weeks. Well, it may be a reason that you're upset. It may be a reason you seek counsel. It may be a reason to sit down and have a talk. But that's not one of the things here, guys. Listen, with leadership comes responsibility. They have to submit to us as knuckleheads, with the knuckleheads, but that's the way God did it. And if we're going to be the ones that are leading the family, then we have responsibility too. So many people want leadership without responsibility. They want the title. They want what they think goes with being a head of a corporation or president of a country, but they don't want the responsibility that goes with it. And husbands have great responsibility because you've been given, we have been given leadership. So we have to love as husbands, whether the wife is lovable or whether that lovability content is not that great at any particular moment. This is true. So this tells us that love is an emotion, but it's also an act of free will. We have to will ourselves to have this particular feeling towards someone, to desire to have this love for them. You know, and if you really do this, if you really do it, even if somebody's giving you a hard time, husband to wife or wife to husband to either one, it, it doesn't mean that wives don't have this feeling toward their husbands sometimes. But if you really are, even when somebody's giving you a hard time, you sit down and pray for the highest and best time to let somebody know you love them. Instead of praying that their legs will fall off. You know, or whatever people pray. I've heard all kind of things. Why not pray why not pray for the highest and best thing? You know, if they're having a bad day, why don't why don't you pray that their day will get better? If they're feeling poorly, why don't you pray that they might start feeling better? If if they are struggling with some aspect of life, why don't you pray for them? It's really hard to maintain an attitude of antagonism in your family. So husbands, that's something I want to seriously consider. Now, in order to assist us, to help us to see what this standard looks like, Paul uses Christ and Christ's love for the church as a sacrifice of the anointing by his example. Just also, just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Christ willingly laid down his life for the church. Now, this is collectively. This is the body of believers. We've seen it individually earlier. But what's true of the individual is also true of the church. And before we can even look at the 
before we were saved, while when he laid his life down for us, we were lost. He went his long lost nephew, we were sinners. And the Bible states that you were his enemy. You can see why Paul, being clueless under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, stood good. It's the highest standard we can prove. We were sinners, Romans 5, I mean, sorry, we were sinners, Romans 5, 8, we were his enemies, Romans 5, 10. Is this kind of model for the husband to follow? The leadership should be marked by self-sacrifice, humbly leading in the home as a servant, never a despot, never a tyrant. Now Christ was the boss. But Christ didn't allow himself to just be run over by men. He still does it. He does it. He, he expects to be treated with respect. And that's going to come up a little bit later. Not tonight, but it'll come up a little bit later. So this is not saying that, that wives, this is not your ticket to just run all over the husband because, well, he's got to sacrifice for me, but he is still the leader. There's a balance, and I hope you're starting to see that. And Paul's going to make sure we understand the balance because he's going to go several more verses on this subject. Now, verses 26 and 27, our subject or pattern for tonight, that he might, this is speaking of Christ giving himself, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Does those verses sound vaguely familiar? They should. Look all the way back to chapter 1. Remember chapter 1, verse 4? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now that's individual, but what's true of the individual is going to be true of the collective as well when it comes to the church. So yes, this is familiar ground for us. Now verses 26 and 27, just to kind of categorize this if we could, verses 26 and 27 contain one purpose clause and two result clauses. The purpose clause, in order that he might sanctify her. The two result clauses, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory and that she might be holy and blameless. So just for purposes of kind of getting our minds around this long, sometimes cumbersome sentence or this phrase, there's one purpose clause and two result clauses. I have to say this. When it comes to people, there's a very clear distinction between what that Hebrew purpose and what the result is. You can read my purpose something, but not be able to discern the result. Okay? But with God, the line is blurred. In fact, these two things synthesize oftentimes. In, in Greek, the, the, the construction is huma, H-I-N-A, with a conjunctive. And for human beings, huma with a conjunctive typically means purpose. But with God, it can mean purpose or result, but they're almost the same thing because what God purposes, he is perfectly capable, because he's omnipotent, he's perfectly capable of attaining that result. You see? So, but, but technically speaking, there's a purpose clause in order that he might sanctify her, and two result clauses, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, and that she might be blameless. Now, the purpose clause. And again, all this is within the context of helping the husband to see what it's like to love the, to love the wife, like Christ loved the church. The purpose clause, Christ died in order to set the church apart, having cleansed her. Some here, when we, when we see the word cleanse, and later on, in verse 26, by the washing of water with the word, 
some people automatically see baptism there. In fact, some people see baptism every time you see the word water in the Greek New Testament. However, that is that's that's not part of the context. What most commentators on the New Testament book of Ephesians see here rather is a reference to the Jewish custom of a ceremonial bridal bath that preceded Jewish weddings in the first century. Ceremonial. That a Jewish bride would have a special bath that she would take that would cleanse her and then make her acceptable to her husband as a new bride. Well, you see, that's what's happening with the church. Before we could be his bride, we are the bride of Christ. There's a cleansing that has to take place. Now, this is not a ceremonial cleansing. This is a cleansing from sin and the stain of sin, both original sin and the sins that were commit. The sin issue had to be dealt with prior to be setting to be being set apart with God. Now that's something that we we sometimes refer to as positional sanctification. So the first phrase here, positional sanctification, that he might sanctify her. The second phrase, having cleansed her. Well, the way that this is structured grammatically, the having cleansed logically precedes the sanctification. Now, theologically, they happen at the same time in terms of when we place our faith in Christ. But here we see a, a logical logical precedence by the cleansing occurring first and then the setting apart occurring second. Christ paid the eternal penalty for sin on the cross, which provides the basis for the church's cleansing and sanctification. As, as we go through this, I want you to see that I, I want you to ever keep before you what Paul's doing with these two verses. It's almost like he made a, took a parenthesis and was talking about soteriology now, and he is. And these are two real serious soteriological verses, meaning the doctrine of salvation. But remember, he's speaking to husbands about what it looks like to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Now watch. When Christ died for the church, church still needed cleansing. Church needed sanctification. He didn't wait till the church was lovely and then die for it. You see what Paul's doing here. He's using Christ as an example. And he's saying he died for the church. He pays this penalty so that he, for the purpose of cleansing us and setting us apart unto him and providing our cleansing and sanctification. So the act of love, the supreme act of love, the greatest act of love that any of us have done for the church or ever will, which is the model of the husband's love of the wife, took place, watch, before the church was lovely. See, the bargain got raised. The wife's bar got raised. She was to, she was to love her, subject herself to, to her husband as unto the Lord. But the husband is to love his wife just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for the church before the church was lovely. So if there's a squabble in marriage, who needs to make the church lovely? The one who's in leadership needs to make the church lovely. That's what's the that's the precedent that he's using here. 
this one here. Now the second prayer, this or the third prayer is by the washing of water with the word. Well, this is of course done. A lot of folks see water in immediately when it comes to baptism, and it has caused some controversy over the centuries. But the reason it's caused the controversy is because people are reading later church ideas back into Paul. And the patrician fathers and uh, early church fathers, they they quickly sort of see this to be baptism. They're reading that back into Paul and assuming it's baptism. But baptism is not in the context of either water baptism or or even, I don't know that you can view the spirit baptism as the context in the context of here either. This is most likely a metaphorical expression of redemption. Again, pulling from that imagery of the first century bridal bath, the ceremonial bridal bath. He most likely uses the word water because that's the cleansing agent that they used in the first century. In fact, if you take a chemistry class in university today, they'll tell you that water is still considered to be the universal solvent. That's just part of chemistry. It doesn't doesn't work on everything, but the first choice would be water to try to be a deadly solvent. So having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, what in the world does that mean? That seems a little more complicated as we go, a lot more clear as we go. The word here is not logos. The word here is rhema. It's a different word for word in the Greek language. And it's a word that has caused a lot of confusion in certain circles. Uh, I had somebody come to me. This was, it must have been almost 17 years ago, but, but I remember the conversation very well. It was a lady that was very well meaning. She didn't go to our church, but she came to me and said, I have a rhema word from God for you. Now, what she meant was that God had spoken to her and told her to come and tell me this particular thing. And she told me it was something that she wanted me to do with regard to church policy. And I said, well, said, well okay, that's good. Now, as soon as God gives me the same rhema word, you know, then I'll be happy to do it. Because what you're saying that God spoke to you actually contradicts the way that I read the Scripture, so I'm going to have to go with that over what you think God spoke to you. Well, that's not really, I don't know where people got that concept that, that this word rhema indicates that God still speaking to you. Well, what this means is, what, what Paul is referring back to is the spoken testimony of Jesus Christ, the spoken testimony of the apostles. That's how we heard about salvation in the first place. That's what got written down. So that's why the word rhema is used. It doesn't mean that there's some sort of revelation from God after he preaches in, in Scripture. But again, that's a little bit of a different subject that we'll come back to as well. So it has to do with redemption, pulling from this imagery of the bridal bath, and we are washed, we are clean, we're cleansed. Now, how are we cleansed? Through the word, through this rhema, through this word from God. Now, in verse 27, we have the two result clauses. But again, if God purposes them, watch, they're going to happen. He purposes they are going to happen. And, and the result clause in God's subject, or the purpose clause in God's subject, it's going to happen because he's omnipotent. And this is a glorious way to end the week one, to see what's going to happen to us in heaven because of what Christ did. This is a wonder, wonderful way to end the night, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Now, I think all of us would agree that that is not the best way to end the week. No, and I think 
whatever you want to before that, made the noise there, which I follow and say, absolutely not. That's not the status of the church now. So this is obviously something in the future. We've had uh, four, at least four members of our church, members 15 to 90 days, others have had 10 days, members two, which seems like a lot of our of our family have, have experienced this thing now to where they are outside of this body of corruption and the sinfulness of this life. And what a great thing that must be to be in heaven and never have to confess another sin because one sin you don't commit any other sin. But the reason for all of this is so that as a body, individually there, but as a body as well, in the future when we get to heaven, we will be presented to him associate the word glory with us, do we? But it's because of what Christ did for us that we will be in glory someday. Now, theologians call this ultimate sanctification. I, miss, I mentioned a moment ago the term positional sanctification. That means we've been set apart into the body of Christ. We've studied that a lot in this book already. That's what it means to be in Him. It means we're saved. It means we are positionally set apart. But even after we're positionally set apart, we still have this sin problem in our life. To be balanced, we need to, to love God and we need to be motivated to do the right thing out of love to Him, not just looking in the rearview mirror wondering what I'm doing wrong. It needs to be to do something right. But having said that, sin is going to be a problem for as long as we live here on this earth. It's a painful, exciting problem for some. It's painful, especially for the ones who are left behind. But once once that plane takes off, and this is a metaphor I like to think of sometimes, but once that plane takes off, and that person's on into heaven, then they are awaiting ultimate sanctification. Uh, since there's a, a different time continuum in heaven than there is now, I think the wait for them won't be like now. I think it's incorrect to say there's no time in heaven. I think that's incorrect. Because time, philosophically, is, is described as a sequence of events. And we certainly know there will be a sequence of events in heaven. But it just won't be the same, the same type of time that's there. Here with the 24-hour rotating Abraham Clinton and all that. Not better that, but I won't be there. But those who are there are awaiting their, their resurrection body. But they're already in a sense in a position where they're right now. They have no, no flaws. None of them. I think the, the, the Bible hints at potential for while we await our resurrection bodies. I think that hint comes when we accept Jesus Christ. But this is a, a really positive way to end this kind of life. This is what's going to happen in the future because of how much Christ loves us. And there's a great prize in that. Again, now remember, this is all under the section of motivating Christians to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Isn't this really the highest and the best that we can want? What more could we ask for our Lord than to want this for us, that we would someday be with him holy and blameless without any flaws at all and, and perfect works? Well, what do you want from your wife? You want the highest and best? This is, this is an example of the highest and best. This is what we should want them. It's more than just throwing stuff at them. I'm not talking about a few times I'm throwing gifts at them. It's more than just showering them with gifts. 
you know what they really want from us? They want your heart. Them a gunny sack certificate because they really thought you gave it to them in love, and they're going to love you. You give them a diamond ring certificate because they thought you just bought it without any thought at all, without any love. It doesn't work. They want they that's what they want because that's the way we were built. By the way, later on we'll see that it's wiser to respect one another. You know what? That's what makes us human. And they want the respect that they want because that's the way we're wired by God as a factory. So this is going to be a future reality. The basis for this was accomplished at the cross. See, Christ made the one sacrifice in order that all this other, all these other things would be done. In heaven, we will have no spot or wrinkle. We'll have no negative aspect to us at all. And we'll be holy, and we'll be blameless. And it'll be a total pop. So we have, don't have the negative, but we do have Okay, so this is, this is how it all comes together. Christ gave himself for us when we were far from loving. This is the model in the middle of high school. This is the model for the husband's culture that the sacrificial movement 